0: Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from AbbVie through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program.
1: Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season four. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside your center, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from experts across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. This season, we're mixing it up a little bit with a series of cross-specialty conversations. And today, I'm really happy to be talking to infectious disease expert with Dr. Suman Chakrabarti. He's a lecturer of infectious diseases at the University of Toronto. His clinical practice is at Trillium Health Partners, and it incorporates post-travel and tropical medicine. He also serves in a leadership capacity as the division head of infectious diseases. Suman, welcome to Dermalogs.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Listen, I'm thrilled to be talking to somebody in infectious diseases because I think, well, first of all, we do share a number of different clinical entities. And second of all, you guys have all kind of become pseudo medical celebrities over the past couple of years with the pandemic. So it's a bit of fangirl action here too.
0: Maybe. Well, I'll tell you something. It's awesome to talk about something that's not related to COVID. So I'm I'm really excited about this.
1: (laughs) Well, you didn't want to talk about COVID for the next uh, 45 minutes?
0: Uh, I'm okay with the other really cool <laughs> derm stuff.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Well, to that end, I think we should steer away from COVID, maybe a little tiny bit of it at the end, sure. but um, talking about some of the things that we um, see that are similar. So what I was kind of thinking is we could chat about some skin infectious stuff. We could talk about different... ID and infection-related things as it pertains to some of the newer medications that we're using. Um, And then maybe a little bit about different pandemic um, slash epidemic things like maybe monkeypox or
0: other stuff. Yeah? That sounds great.
1: Fantastic. I'm going to kick things off by actually talking about different infectious disease related to medications that we're using. And so As you'll be well aware in dermatology in the last decade or so, we've really had an explosion um, of therapeutic options, so biologics. Over the last year or two, we've also had JAK inhibitors um, and more, uh, more and more options are becoming available. And the one thing that we know about these medications is they do tend to increase risks of certain infections. And so what I wanna talk about is screening, vaccinations, And other things that we should keep an eye out for our patients that are taking these medications.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think this is something that uh, we get a lot, actually. I I would say in our clinic, the most common thing that we get is somebody who has already gotten, for example, TB screening, which is quite common Mm -hmm. with most of the year, uh, especially the biologics. Um, One thing I will add, though, is that as time has gone on, especially in rheumatology, but a lot of these biologics are getting a lot more targeted. So we do see, uh, you know, opportunistic infections. But that said, it is a lot less than it was, say, when I first started ten years ago, when people were using Remicade for everything. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what, you know what I mean. So, uh, but yeah, like I, I think that uh, we'll all be obviously glad to help you guys with these. But you know, things like uh, TB are one thing to consider. But with the Jack inhibitors, for example, uh, shingles is another thing that we've kind of really been seeing mm-hmm. come to the forefront.
1: Let's talk a little bit about TB first, because as a lowly dermatologist at times, I get confused by different TB tests and who should get what. So let's say that any patient that's going to go on a psoriasis biologic or a JAK inhibitor is going to get a baseline TB screening. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about your thoughts about PPD or skin test versus quantiferon and where might be the right fit for certain patients or does it matter?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'll say one thing is that all of these TB diagnostics are imperfect. And I think that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you go back to the, the, the TB skin test, the PPD is quite old. And, you know, uh, especially in somebody who might already have a skin condition, uh, sometimes it can be unreliable. If somebody's already been on treatment with steroids, you, you get the picture. And of course, there's mm-hmm. uh, some uh, uh, variability in terms of how things are read. What I'm finding a lot is, especially in the derm clinics, uh, a lot of people are sent to me through trials, uh, you know, for a lot of these medications, and the quantiferon mm-hmm. is done. Uh, I- I'm seeing mm-hmm. it. it's a bit easier to interpret because it's kind of like a, it's a number, but it's, you know, positive or negative. Uh, and I think that that's, it's a great thing. But one thing it's important to uh, keep in mind is that both of these are tests for latent TB. And uh, mm-hmm. in many situations, mm-hmm. people will do both. But I, I'll, one thing I will add is that the thing that is nice about the um, TB Quantiferon, uh, if you can get it uh, for free for the patient, is that it doesn't get contaminated by somebody who is relatively young and has had the BCG vaccination. Uh, so
1: That was going to be a question. Th- that's, okay. that, that's the
0: big thing. So, um, you know, people are kind of loosely using both uh, and sometimes that's what it is. But I will say that especially for our patients that come from regions where BCG vaccination is done. It uh, might be a better idea to get the quantifier on.
1: And so, currently, are there still places? This is probably showing my ignorance, but um, <laughs> are there still places that are giving BCG vaccine? And if so, like what kind of region should kind of tweak that? Probably BCG vaccine if the patient doesn't know, because sometimes they tell you and sometimes they have no idea.
0: Absolutely. so first of all I would say that uh, the best place if you're unsure is something called the BCG World Atlas oh, okay. so you can go there and they, they'll actually give you know really quick information so say example uh, India you can go to uh, and click on India uh, from if you're good at geography from the map or on, on the list there and it'll tell you uh, number one what they give when they give it, and how many doses they give of BCG. So in general, right now, BCG is still broadly given around the world. And in general, it's in the more typical TB endemic areas. Okay. For example, South Asia is a, is a big one, probably the most common one for us.
1: So essentially, if the patient's had a BCG, quantiferin is the way to go? I would
0: say yes, especially if they're younger. Okay.
1: If you have a patient that you do a TB skin test on, for example... I remember way back in my internal medicine residency days that there were ways that you could interpret the area of induration and that certain medications potentially increase or decrease your threshold for being concerned. What do you tend to use as a rule of thumb slash is there an easy resource as well that we could use in derm?
0: Yeah. So, so the, the best, first of all, the best resource is the Canadian TB standard. It's easy to find on, online and it has that chart there for you. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, sometimes I have to look it up myself just because it, it, there's all these kind of case by case situations. Just to remember is that the um, more the potential immune suppression a person has, the less you're going to accept a certain uh, threshold of the TB skin test. So, for example, okay. if somebody's on steroids for whatever, if they have a five millimeter skin test or if they're on a biologic already, you probably consider that positive. Right? Uh, right. And then after that, for the most part, people would go with uh, anything over 10 is positive. There are some mm-hmm. people who say, you know what, if something's over 15, you want to consider that positive regardless. But in my practice, I see a lot of these. And what I always say is if somebody is young and it's meaning, say, 40 or under or so, and especially if they've had more than one uh, BCG vaccination, you might want to say, you know what, I know this is a big TB positive test. Let's get that um, quantifuron to make sure that it's not the effect of the BCG.
1: Right. And do you think that it's sufficient if you're stuck with a PPD test, that a one step is sufficient to kind of say yay or nay to latent TB? Or do you really think a two step? I mean purist you're going to say two-step but like as a one-step are we okay doing? yeah
0: it's really good so i I agree as a purist you should do a two-step if you haven't had one before Uh, but the main thing is the two-step is more if you're going to be doing it as a serial thing just to make sure that let's say if this year is negative and the next year you do when it's positive if you do the two-step you can make sure it's not a boosting phenomenon Uh, otherwise you'd think that they've been recently exposed but you know for the purposes of uh, putting them on a biologic a one-step is fine uh, and just make sure you have a trained uh, person like one of us uh, yeah, as a physician or a nurse reading it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, the residents had a question. I want to talk about latent TB in a moment, but the patient, the residents had a question.
0: You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Kaylin Bouchard. I'm a resident at the University of Alberta. My question for Dr. Chakrabarty is... For TB QuantiFERON testing, there have been cases of initial positive, which is then redone later and becomes negative. Are there any guidelines for retesting again? And what are the reasons for the conversion of the test? Thank you. This is a tough one. And, I, you know, uh, thankfully it doesn't happen all that often, but we certainly do see it if you do enough. And, uh, you know, what's probably happening is that it's a test that is hovering around the limit of detection. So if you, if mm-hmm. you ever had a chance, take a look at it. You can see that there's multiple parts of the, the, the test. So sometimes, for example, okay. there's a positive and a negative control, and then there's the test itself. Sometimes the negative control um, uh, goes off, so it becomes indeterminate, which is more common than negative. Otherwise, sometimes if you're right close to the threshold, if you're a bit above it, it will cause it, it'll um, call it um, negative. If you're a bit below it, it'll call it positive. You, you know what I'm saying? So um, okay, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, if somebody look at the the background, if you have a test that's that's done that. And you see the persons from the Philippines, which is a very, very highly endemic area, or India, you might want to say, okay, look, the the pretest probability of this being positive is pretty high. I'll err on the side of caution and then give them a quick course of, for example, uh, rifampin, so long as they're asymptomatic.
1: And my next question really led into, you get your positive quantiferon or you get your positive uh, TB skin test, and you're worried about latent TB, what I tend to do here is I'll order a chest X-ray and I'll refer them to my ID colleagues. Is that is there other stuff that would help ID? Is it even worth doing the chest X-ray? Or do we just say, you know, go see ID and they'll kind of tell us what the best thing is?
0: No, listen, I really appreciate when people come with a chest X-ray. Uh, I, it really, really helps because the main thing is, is that even though the, the TB skin test or QuantiFERON is certainly not a reliable measure of whether somebody has active TB, there are situations where they do correlate, so you want to really rule out active TB. A chest X-ray is a great way to start, and send to us, and we're really glad to help with the clinical assessment. And you know, for the most part, occasionally we get a person that is active, uh, but for the for, but usually it's not, and it's just a matter of us getting them on on therapy. One thing I also really really want to stress, especially to you guys, is that the idea of the reactivation of TB with a biologic thing is you know it, it's not a, a, a proximal problem. It's something mm-hmm. that can theoretically occur in the future. If somebody has awful psoriasis and they're really suffering, get them on the treatment. We'll still see them. And yeah, we can start them on, on the therapy for latent TB. But if they're really suffering, if all that testing is ready and uh, you know they're just waiting on a treatment plan, start them on the therapy so they're not suffering.
1: That's really important, I think, to think about because a lot of times what we'll do is say, oh, positive TB test, we'll send them to ID. And then you know you kind of wait that, I think currently we think about a month on their latent TB treatment, and then we'll start the biologic. But I think keeping in mind the severity and impact on the patient is really important and that we're unlikely to explode out into like a active TB
0: problem. Usually when the TB comes, it's relatively slow onset. And you're absolutely right. Look, if you can get two two to four weeks of uh, uh, anti-mycobacterials into them, that's awesome. But, you know, I've seen people, uh, I mean, you you much more than me, but really, really in bad shape with whatever they have. And, you know, I don't want somebody to be suffering for that long with a theoretic risk.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I had a young girl the other day who needs a JAK inhibitor for terrible atopic dermatitis. And of course, she'll need a TB test, but her pretest risk is very low. So I said, let's get her on it and then we'll deal with the other things later. I think the other piece that's coming up a lot in dermatology right now is that our older biologic, like anti-TNF alpha inhibitors, do have a theoretical risk of reactivation of TB down the line, but that some of our newer agents, like agents that block IL-23 or 17, probably don't have that same effect. do you, I don't know how to ask you, like, do you think we should keep screening? Because of course the answer is going to be yes. And for the residents, I always do a TB test before biologic only because I never know if I'm going to have to backtrack to a TNF or a Jack or something. So I like to have all my T's crossed and my I's dotted. But could you foresee a time maybe would be a different way to ask this, that certain biologics may not require a TB test prior to starting?
0: We were just talking about this the other day, and I, I did allude to that, that, look, a lot of these new biologics are getting much more um, focused on how they affect the immune system. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, we might find out there are other um, opportunistic infections for us to look at, but I agree with you that this is probably going to be something that we back off on later, but especially like you mentioned, get it just so you have it on record. We're going to need long-term data mm-hmm. to know whether the risk of TB is uh, smaller, but for now, I'd recommend going with it, but I agree. Maybe in ten years we won't be doing it as often. One other thing I will add, though, is that we've probably, you know, the the demographics of Canada are changing. Mm-hmm. I'm from Mississauga, so we have a massive South Asian population right. here. In Halifax, it's changing as well. And w- what I mean by that, we are getting more people coming in from uh, TB endemic areas, so the pretest probability goes mm-hmm. up. So just kind of balance those two, and we'll have an answer for you in a couple in, in, in a decade.
1: in a decade after we gather all the real world evidence. Because I guess the complicating factor, if you're following the evidence is that I don't think a patient, you know, there's not been a biologic trial in recent years for any molecule that hasn't screened out for TB. So it's a bit hard to, to say. Okay. So, you know, we get our patient on the biologic, whether or not they require TB treatment. The piece that we always discuss with patients when they are put on a biologic or systemic therapy is, you know, you have an increased risk of infection. And it's sort of this like mystery black box in some ways unless you're an id doctor and so i tend not to unless it's say an anti-il-17 and i'm going to talk to them about the risk of candida thrush i tend to just kind of like overarchingly talk about infection um what do you think makes more sense for me to say to patients and or when patients are on say biologics for eczema and psoriasis what kind of infections really have you maybe seen come up that we should be concerned about?
0: It's a good point, and I, I think that when you look at the entire situation, if uh, say for Jack and Hibber, just to give an example, you see the, the literature on them. Mm-hmm. They'll mention you know shingles. They'll mention uh, mm-hmm. um, you know infection in general, but things like cellulitis, UTI. But the issue is that they're it, it's kind of confounded because many people that are on these also have other um, comorbidities that put them at risk for this anyway right so I think right. what I, uh, I like the approach of kind of going for the ones that we know are preventable and they're important like for example shingles and you mentioned Canada that's mm-hmm. a great one just to have them aware of it right but again if mm-hmm. somebody gets a UTI and they're on a biologic it doesn't necessarily mean it's because of the biologic it's just that it it, it happens right. so I think going at the specific ones that we know about and then just in general telling people that if they see a doctor for something mention they're on these these immunosuppressive agents
1: to that, Uh, And I find that a lot of times if patients mention to anyone that's not, say, an ID doc or a dermatologist or someone that uses biologics in other contexts, that as soon as they have any kind of infection, so it could be a simple cellulitis, it could be an uncomplicated UTI, they're told by that provider, okay, stop your biologic. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support that. And typically what I will say to patients is, listen, if you end up in the hospital on IV antibiotics, we're going to hold your dose. But, if you get a simple you know pneumonia, we're not necessarily going to hold your dose now, keeping in mind that you know different patients have different risk, is that fair? Am I being safe?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and this is an idea like you know especially uh, I'm bringing up the c word covid here, but you know <laughs> with, uh, with, with immune suppression mm-hmm. comes in many different forms It's not just an on or off thing, and you're you're absolutely right like if somebody's on an immune suppression immunosuppressive and they get an infection especially if it's mild, I agree, you don't necessarily need to stop it. Um, if they're in hospital and they're severe, yeah, for sure, I think it's good stopping it and waiting. But uh, just remember that even if you're on an immune suppressant, uh, suppressant, your immune system is still working mostly just fine. And it's it's a matter of looking at the severity of what's, mm-hmm. what's in front of you.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fair. And before I move on from talking about uh, biologics, specifically think about psoriasis and eczema, timing of vaccinations that you need to give and so you know you get your exam answer where you're giving the things and you're waiting weeks or whatever um but let's just say you know if i'm going to start a person in their 60s on um an anti-il 23 agent and i'm going to suggest that they get their pneumonia Mm -hmm. vaccine do you think there's optimal or ideal timing um probably going to come back a little bit to the severity of the patient, but like in terms of just like boosting their actual immune response or getting protection from the vaccination, like what do you think works best in a perfect in, world? In a perfect world,
0: the longest possible, right? Because <laughs> As we right. know with um, with any kind of vaccination, there's affinity maturation that's happening months later, right? And in the real mm-hmm. world, you can't wait that long. So, you know, in general, like if you get a vaccine, if you can wait a month uh, before, uh, mm-hmm. uh, two months even Uh, And I've seen lots of different recommendations, and to be honest with you, I don't think a lot of them have any extra evidence beyond them, apart from the fact you want to wait as long as you can, uh, which is not always possible uh, depending on what you're treating
1: that's fair. So my two weeks seems to be totally made up and probably isn't,
0: uh, I'll reevaluate that. Say hepatitis a, just to give an example, like you have pretty significant okay. protection, even two weeks in, there is something going on. It's not okay. that you're going to completely blow up the immune response. It's just that, you know, uh, theoretically that's what they say, but I mean, a couple of weeks is better than doing it uh, the day before.
1: Okay. And just before I totally move on from that, uh, you know, the one thing that we always are told and it's drilled into your brain is no live vaccines on biologic, no live vaccines. And just to make sure that I'm up to date on what are live vaccines, in my mind, it's rotavirus in kids, intranasal influenza, yellow fever,
0: MMRV. Uh, Am
1: I missing uh, anything? uh,
0: the, the, right? the, the previous shingles vaccine was, but, uh, uh but, but, yeah, right.
1: right. Yes. Shingri- Sh- the, the the Shingrix, the old, the old one. No.
0: Yeah. The, yeah. Zostavax. Zostavax. That's it. Yeah. And, yeah. And the new one isn't.
1: But Shingrix uh, yeah. is
0: good. And the other one this, this is good. This is good. You got your, your ID boards you pass them. Uh,
1: oh, I, I definitely have not, you know, I remember one of my preceptors here did a lot of microbiology and he'd pass around the, the Petri plates oh. when we do, ID and smell this. I'm oh. like, Oh no, thank oh, yeah. you. Um, but it's very cool. It looked pretty, but I didn't really want to get too close. And, to I, and I did. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you course, did. Yeah, yeah. See there. That's how we're different, and that's how different people do different specialties. Okay. I'm just going to shift a tiny bit more over to the vaccine side. Just thinking about Jack inhibitors, and so as we know, recently Health Canada approved Shingrix vaccine for 18 plus. Now, this is a resident question?
0: Hi, my name is Francois and I'm a resident at McGill University and my question is regarding the shingles vaccine recommendations before starting a JAK inhibitor. Um, So should everyone get one or are there additional risk factors, especially for young patients, that should be considered?
1: So, you know, does your 19 year old that you're starting on a JAK inhibitor need the shingles?
0: I mean, what do you, how, do you do, how do you interpret and again, this? I think that I, I will be honest and say that a lot of this is a bit of a data-free zone. So um, I think that mm-hmm. the there's no doubt that we have seen this signal. Um, and uh, particularly uh, when you get overlapping risk factors, the main one being age, uh, that you want to really get that mm-hmm. uh, Shingrix vaccine in there. Hard to know with 19-year-olds. To be fair, we are seeing shingles happening kind of progressively earlier than we did, say, 20 years ago. The reasons for that aren't entirely clear might be because we're not seeing kids anymore with chickenpox and adults aren't getting that natural boost that we used to get right? because all the kids are vaccinated. But uh, it's it's a thought. But what I will say with younger people, remember that the majority of them will have gotten chickenpox vaccine uh, as as kids. So they kind of have some protection. Uh, So I know this is an imperfect answer, but I think that we're waiting on data on that.
1: And do you think that there's any benefit in some of the younger patients for checking if they are varicella immune, or does that really not impact your decision to do,
0: not really? You, you can check, but it's hard to know. Like If they've had a history of chicken pox, that's a very, very good indicator if they're immune. Uh, and if they've right. had the vaccine, they, they most likely are. It, it, it's a pretty good vaccine. And I always forget the year. But I think it was around 94 was there kids born after 95 or in that range somewhere? Um, they've all gotten it. Um, and that's important first to know, because uh, that has changed the dynamic of who gets shingles, who gets chickenpox.
1: Totally. And and then just thinking one other thing that kind of came up as we were talking here that um, for a period of time, I know there were there was not the MMR booster. So I personally was in the age cohort of like getting one. And then in medical school, there was a local mumps outbreak. So we all got more. Um, But do you think, you know, let's say there's patients in their mid thirties to mid forties is checking say MMR titers worthwhile and giving a booster had they not been known to have one in the past decade? I
0: have an, uh My opinion on this is that that's what we often do is check the, the titer. But the issue is, is that we saw that uh, exactly what you mentioned. I'm part of that same uh, court. Uh, I'm going to literally date myself here. I was born in 79.
1: I was going to say we're both 29, 29. but it turns out we were both born in 79. So So 79, we
0: only got the one. And what I say, if you kind of look at the data going back the last couple of decades, you'll see that our cohort, you can see mumps and measles outbreaks have followed us through as we've gotten older. And now we're past bar age, but there used to be all these bar outbreaks with our age group. (laughs) <laughs> so it, it, what I suggest is that if you've only gotten the one dose, you haven't been immune, suppressed, everybody should just get that second dose. I, I think it's regardless of titer.
1: Okay. So if they're not aware of having had a second dose, we just just, just do, just it, do yeah. it. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Do you think there's anything we didn't cover talking about biologics, vaccines and infections that if you could just have the ear of all the derm residents, you'd want them to know? No, I,
0: I think th- those are the big things. I, I mean, you know, I, I, we always talk about the idea of reactivation uh, of infection. Uh, I guess, you know, you know, one other one I, mm-hmm. I would say, I'm not sure how much rituximab you guys use um, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, in, in steroids. One other big one I would mention is hepatitis B. So uh, an interesting yes. thing that uh, can happen, and I'm, I'm sure you he- you guys have heard this, is that if you're using steroids, steroids initiate it, being initiated doesn't cause problems with hepatitis B. But if somebody has active hepatitis B and you start to uh, decrease the steroids, people will often get a flare. So I think that's another good thing to screen mm-hmm. for, especially in people from um, yeah, East Asia.
1: Yeah. Some people use more, I use a fair amount of rituximab. um, And so I think that comes into play as with the Mm -hmm. steroid piece. The Mm -hmm. other thing that's happened in my general screening prior to starting a biologic, many of those patients also previously have to do methotrexate. And so I screen hep B, hep C. I will say, incidentally, I've picked up a couple positives in both of patients that weren't aware. um, And I tend to just go, oh, Um, And then I'll text one of my, you know, I'll text Lisa Barrett or something. What do I do here? And I'll check viral loads and refer. But like, what do you, so say we incidentally come upon a positive. Now, Hep B is a tricky one because of all the core and surface and blah, blah, blah. What, what coming across your desk, what should go? What should tweak you to go, oh man, I better do something about this?
0: The best thing about this is that you want to make sure you get the full serology, just like you mentioned. If you, if you, uh, The big thing mm-hmm. for us to look for is if somebody has a positive surface antigen, that means they have active hepatitis. And at any point, if they had a right. core antigen that's positive, it means they've been exposed to the virus. Um, for the most part, if they're immune, it's not as big of a deal. But there are situations where if somebody's been exposed and they've cleared it, they can potentially reactivate with things like rituximab. So uh, what I would do is okay. uh, definitely get that full profile. And if you happen to have a core positive or a certain percentage in positive, getting that HBV uh, DNA can kind of give us the idea of um, how mm-hmm. active it is. Okay, HBV DNA.
1: And then with respect to hepatitis C, um, I know our lab locally. So if you order hepatitis C, um, immunity it, they'll do like a two-step type of test to determine if it's like true or not i'm not 100 sure about what that means but
0: yeah for us what they'll do uh, I mean, it should be the same for you guys they'll, i might have made that up the, it's hard to say yeah. <laughs> but no listen uh, the tests change and they are different from region to region but with hepatitis c they'll do the the antibody right uh, and if it's positive um you know nowadays we have treatments for hepatitis c that can cure it right. so obviously it's important to know if they've been treated if you're unsure Sent ID, or usually it's actually gastroenterology, depending right. on where you are. And the big thing is they'll do is a hepatitis C RNA to see if it's actually an active infection. But you have to um, uh, order that separately if the serology comes back positive.
1: Okay. And in the context of one of the, pa- you know, a, pa- a pre-biologic patient having a, a positive, you know, hepatitis B core or hep C uh, screening test, I-, I suspect the preference would be to hold off on starting a biologic until after they start treatment?
0: And and again, like, uh, you know, it it depends. (laughs) Now, one thing I will say, and this is the practice oncologists, oncologists are quite, uh, uh, you know, privy to this, especially when they see things like lymphoma. And oftentimes what they'll do is they'll kind of start Mm -hmm. the person on a suppressive tenofovir. Uh, But that said, they've been, you know, many of them have been doing this for a long time. So again, you know, this is where we're glad to help or hepatology, uh, depending on where you are. And uh, oftentimes what will happen if somebody does have chronic active, They'll be put on a suppressive agent and then go forth with the, the okay. immune suppression. But again, it, it's a case-by-case basis. And I'll admit, here in Ontario, usually hepatitis uh, viruses are dealt with by hepatology.
1: And thinking about, yeah, and I think it's it's regionally different. And obviously, we have some ID and GI people here who are very interested in hep C. So it's, um, you can get, get yeah. kind of both sides in terms of rituximab specifically because we didn't really dive into that and it does have a totally different mechanism of action are there other infections or things like that that you think are reasonable to screen ahead for same with prednisone i know some of my colleagues in toronto in dermatology do strongyloides yeah um, for example screening and we haven't done that in nova scotia typically because to your point Previously we didn't have as much um, you know, immigration and now we do have patients coming from a variety of different places around the world. And so what should make us think about adding um different or maybe targeted screening?
0: Yeah, this is a tough one. And I, I think part of this is because screening in the situation uh, it really does need to be a focus. So, for example, um, stranguloides—the big problem—is especially with rituximab or any kind of, like, even lymphoma treatment. Um, with rituximab, is if they come from a region where HTLV-1 is quite common, for example, in uh, places like the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, you might want to consider checking for stranguloides because there's the elevated risk of HTLV-1 stranguloides co-infection, and that can be reactivated. Or actually, reactivated, but kind of. Um, um, initiated okay with uh, uh immunosuppressive therapy but that said the yield is extremely low okay. you know even uh so i think that uh the, the main ones is stuff you already do on a case-by-case basis you may consider doing htlv1 uh, uh slash mm-hmm. uh but i don't think that you don't need you need to do this as a routine basis
1: I feel like if I started doing that locally, I'd, I'd hear from the lab uh, uh, director. Say, we we, we used to quite a bit of
0: strongyloides here in uh, in uh, my region. And yeah. we were doing it for all of the COVID uh, immune suppression. And then we heard from the lab. So, yeah. yeah. Totally- okay. you
1: <laughs> When you guys are... Okay. Okay. Good. Fair enough. All right. So, okay. I think that's a good coverage for thinking about biologics, infections, and vaccinations. So I want to shift gears a little bit and maybe talk about some infections that we both may end up seeing or things that get treated with longer-term antibiotics just to kind of get your take on that yeah, that's sure. cool so what happens a lot i find is um patients that have you know a red limb because i'm not going to go down the route of bilateral yeah, yeah. cellulitis yeah. it does not exist i
0: saw it once i saw it once really a guy who had jumped into sewage oh. uh so and I, saw this, I was like okay i should write this up this is actually bilateral cellulitis <laughs> No, Did you but, write uh, it up? I, I,
1: you should. You could go back to listen. That's that is a magical unicorn of of medicine, dermatology.
0: It was, and, and I saw this guy. There's no way. And then I saw the guy's like, This is actually bilateral. But then again, the history was so so clear.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not that many patients are fortunately finding in themselves exactly. both legs in sewage. But, you know, I, I guess what I want to just think is, are we doing a similar practice? So patient comes in uncomplicated, what looks like cellulitis, like sometimes they'll wind up with yep. us, sometimes they'll wind up with you guys, sometimes they'll wind up in eMERGE or their family doctor office. I find a lot of people have a tendency to give IV, uh, third generation cephalosporins. it seems a little yep. bit much to me, but what do you tend to, like, how do you just generally approach like a straight up so cellulitis? this is something
0: that uh, is actually probably the most common thing that we see in our clinic, and this is why... I do uh, tend to rant on this a bit, but I'll keep it short. Um, so when you see an acute cellulitis, okay, okay the one thing that I want to uh, really kind of hit home is that you don't have to treat them with IV. There's nothing magical about IV. Mm-hmm. For sure, if they're septic, you know, they're admitting them, then you you, you put it on. But remember that um, the most common cause, your, your uh, group A strep and staph, and uh, we'll treat them with oral. And here's a big thing. Cephalexin sucks. Okay, so it's four times a day. Nobody <laughs> takes it properly. So what I strongly recommend is start prescribing safadroxyl, which you can give, I I hope you guys do, 500.
1: I do now, yes, because of Dr. McNeil locally who told me, it's only BID.
0: And not only is it only BID, you can actually do it OD as well. You can give one gram once a day uh, for soft tissue infections. One other important thing is that redness in many patients, especially those who are, um, at risk for getting cellulitis is not a good proxy marker, uh, uh, not a good proxy for in, um, ongoing mm-hmm. infection. And you guys, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, uh, oftentimes when people have cellulitis, they'll have things like fever and you know, chills. That'll go away, but the redness will uh, will remain. And what I think I always say, I would say 99% of the time, if redness isn't getting better with antibiotics, Number one, it's almost certainly not infected unless there's like a, you know abscess there. And number two, IV can actually paradoxically worsen okay. the problem. I, I get these people where if you have a venous insufficient leg and you put any kind of edema on that, whether it's from a baseball hitting it or IV, when it swells, it's going to turn red and start yes. weeping. Yes. Right? And the biggest, uh, aside from ANSEP, the biggest um, problem is piptazo. Is piptazo, which occasionally I see when people have not been getting better, it's a massive salt okay. load. So I think the the um, uh, moral of the story here is try to avoid IV unless they're right. absolutely septic and need to be admitted.
1: I think that makes sense. And cefadroxil, one gram once a day to twice a day. What's your alternate? Okay. So like this sometimes happens, you know, you'll treat a patient, they'll get better. They'll keep having recurrent um, cellulitis infection, like true ones, not you know, this is one that we we, we will agree as a cellulitis, let's say. Um, And I've had over time where some of them just don't really respond, or they've had two or three courses. Do you at that point tend to then switch to something different? And if so, like what, because I tend to do clindamycin, I probably shouldn't admit that. But I'll kind of go. I'm gonna get strep, or yeah. <laughs> oh my heart. Um, but I just think to myself, like, if someone has had a couple courses or they're getting recurrent infection, am I either missing it or is it just not totally sensitive? And and what should I? How do I handle that?
0: Well, usually with these true recurrent ones, it's going to be some. It's going to be group A strep. But the thing is, usually this is happening mm-hmm. in a situation where there's a background risk factor. So, for example, a woman who's had right. her um, uh, uh, actually lymph nodes removed for breast cancer. So chronic lymphedema. Uh, Another big one is people that have kind of um, decompensated venous insufficiency. So what I always do is go back and look for a risk factor and see if there's anything I can do to correct Mm -hmm. that. I I send lots of people to DERM because they have uncontrolled eczema. You know, compression is a huge one that I use, but no, I don't often. uh, What I will do, there are ones, look, you're not going to, they're not getting better. It's true recurrent. There's two things you can do. Number one, I'll give them what I call a pill-in-the-pocket course, and then I'll follow up with them six months later. If they've used all of the -the pill-in-the-pocket courses, arbitrarily it's anywhere from six to nine a year, then you can actually consider putting them on low-dose suppression, which I do in a minority of cases. But usually in that case, I'll give them, say, cefalexin uh, or cefadroxil, 250 milligrams once a day for six months and then reassess and see how they're doing. I try not to keep them on it for life because some of these people are like, you know, 50 years old and they have a lot of life ahead of them.
1: Absolutely, okay. Now, what about thinking about cellulitis versus erysipelas? so, um, and we often end up with those sort of hot red ones and, and you do too, but my teaching was always sort of, erysipelas is more superficial, but they get sicker and you need to treat it longer. Do you find that to be the case in your experience?
0: No. So I think that there was a lot of uh, time where before where, for example, if somebody was septic, mm-hmm. if somebody was more, you, know, you would treat for longer. There's a lot of 14 days of antibiotics. As evidence is rolled in, uh, ID doesn't have a lot of good evidence outside of HIV, but we have a lot of clinical experience. We're starting to realize that shorter and shorter courses of antibiotics ought to mm-hmm. suffice, especially if somebody is mm-hmm. getting better. So if somebody um, is not getting better after seven days, either revise the diagnosis, something else is going on, or look for a source like an abscess, but strictly to answer your question, a true erysipelas versus cellulitis. Um, you know, we I treat it for five to seven days, and uh, you know, assess especially for systemic symptoms getting better.
1: That makes sense. The other skin thing that comes up a lot is this sort of MRSA thing, and whether it be community or hospital acquired. Although personally, I'm finding it more community acquired. Um, you know, sure. I guess. Do you kind of think of that? in the same way that we would. So I would say, okay, people are getting all these sort of funky looking abscesses, but it doesn't, there's not localized to something like HS, you swab it, it's community-acquired MRSA, and then usually I'll pick whatever it seems sensitive to, Ceptra, which is my least favorite drug of all time, um, or something else, oh, and yeah. give them, you know, a few weeks. But I don't, is that something that you think is reasonable for a derm to handle, or is it something that makes more sense if it's MRSA to sort of go to ID?
0: No, no. I I think, um, first of all, we're always glad to see uh, patients. I love collaborating with you guys. But yeah, for sure, if somebody has an MRSA abscess, it gets lanced or what have you, uh, and you give something like doxy, septra, even Mm -hmm. clinda can work. Um, But one thing I I do suggest is that um, whereas before we used to talk about doing topical decolonization to actually revert to negative, what I'll often find, rather than doing that, just giving them some topical decolonization once things are healed, with clorexidine, uh, mupiracin, or bleach bath, not to try to clear it, but just to kind of help to reduce the bio right. burden. Sometimes that can cut that cycle. And that's the, the other thing that I add sometimes. Okay.
1: And when I tend to do that, I I do the same. So I'm feeling better about this now, but I'll give them mupiracin and I'll say twice a day for two weeks in the nares and then like a weekly bleach bath for like a bit of time. And then if they have something yeah. that is yeah. recurrent or eczema, despite the fact that there's not a ton of evidence with respect to bleach bath. I still find for some people it does work or decrease colonization. So I'll say like once a week type of thing. Okay. 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 That's good. I'm feeling better.
0: Definitely. And and what I always say is with um, these things, they're often recurrent to the point where, you know, the what I've always seen the patterns, you're going to see people that get a lot of recurrences. And once you break that cycle, it still happens, but then it gets fewer, far farther between and more, um, um, or sorry, less intense with mm-hmm. time. Uh, the other thing you can sometimes do if, if they're getting a lot is um, uh, decolonize topically their closest contact. Okay, okay. So a spouse, an ID, we use the term bed buddy. But <laughs> uh, uh, you know, somebody, uh, if, if it's a child, you occasionally get to um, you know, decolonize the parent that has the closest contact. Okay. Uh, you don't have to do the whole household, but sometimes just get those two people can then again, break the chain. Okay, that's a great tip. Never thought of that.
1: Okay. Shifting gears, thinking about, you know, in dermatology, we use a lot of antibiotics, but not for infection. So we use a lot of antibiotics to leverage their antibacterial or anti-inflammatory properties. Yeah. So for example, yeah. in hydride suppurativa, we'll use tetracycline base, same with acne, same with folliculitis. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes when I'm doing this and giving people, you know, three months, six months of doxycycline, I'm secretly feeling bad from an antimicrobial stewardship perspective. But, you know, how much are we kind of messing up the, the, the microbiome or risking um, resistant bacteria by, by some of the things we do?
0: By the way, yeah, this is, this is a great topic. And, uh, you know, uh, I actually do sometimes, uh, for example, doxycycline. There's some evidence, uh, I'm sure you guys know Dr. Sibyl, mm-hmm. but he talks about in terms of stalled wounds that actually aren't going to be maintenance. Sometimes it helps, right? And I agree that that pleo, uh, pleomorphic type of effect. So, with um, that, yeah, there probably is going to be some effect. There's there's no doubt about it. But uh, uh, in general, there are things you can do, like um, uh, you know, eating uh, pickled stuff, uh, kombucha. Um, uh, what's that? The, the Korean cabbage. Uh, oh, kimchi. Uh, kimchi. Uh, you can get like probiotics. All these things can help. One nice thing about doxycycline is one of the antibiotics that has the least likelihood of, uh, say, causing C. diff, right? So, yeah, we do have to kind of be aware of that. But I think in this case, you're often using this in a a relatively young person, right? So uh, the the benefit greatly outweighs the risk. But it's a good thing to think about uh, theoretically.
1: And there have been versions of doxycycline, for example, one that's a slow release, a low dose version called Mm Aprilon, right? And so sometimes I'll use that trying to decrease that antimicrobial um, burden. But if you, okay, so in a perfect world, you probably say you're not using antibiotics for non-infections, but like, let's say that you're going to use doxy for, for acne, do you think it, you know, is three months, six months, like what's in your mind kind of a good hard cutoff? We have other options, obviously, but, um, yeah. you know, sometimes it's the right fit for the patient. I
0: agree. And, and look, I, I think that uh, uh, with this, it, there's also a lot of data behind using this for, it's been used for forever, right? Uh, doxycycline for HS, yeah. for example. But I think the thing is, is it, it's, just, it, it's looking at the patient, if it's somebody that has a huge uh, risk of C. diff, you know, you might want to Try to avoid that, but I agree that uh, if there's an effect there, it's more theoretical, and I don't think there's any long-term, especially in the the patient populations that it's being used. If I, you know, if uh, we ended up doing some uh, uh, stool microbiome studies, maybe it'll be a bit different, but not like, for example, having somebody on clavulin for you know three months for a chronic osteo right
1: okay okay so it's a you know i've always kind of thought of it that way and most patients don't have a lot of significant side effects related to it but i will say as well in case any of the residents are planning to do this in practice future in the future like long-term minocycline please don't do it because there are potential side effects uh, pigmentation yeah, and things sure. like that so i i know that you know when i first started practice i used a lot of minocycline and i've really switched my um my game and moved over to doxycycline more readily. Okay. One more brief topic to keep your time in mind. And this is just to come back to what we started with, which is a little bit about pandemic and I think dermatologic manifestations of various diseases. And so I guess, you know, how do we as a group um, maintain or be up to date on things like the cutaneous manifestations of COVID or like when monkeypox was like, which seems to have kind of quieted down, I don't uh, knock on wood on Definitely. that, but like, Definitely. you know, I think a lot yeah. of pandemic or epidemic have some skin findings. And so I'm just trying Absolutely. to think, you know, do you have any advice for us on how to kind of like be involved or be up to date? Cause sometimes it's, you know, we lag, not in ID.
0: No, I, I mean, same in ID. You know, one thing I, I have to say, and it's a little bit of, uh, paramedicine, if I can put it. But I think that what happened is, for those of you who are on social media, Twitter, unfortunately, took a little bit of a, it kind of stole the narrative. And there were people that had no business talking about this stuff, and are really taking this and and running with it. That ended up being the big focus. What I honestly think is that, you know, getting back to the old times of just actually, um, you know, clinical rounds, Mm Like joint clinical rounds because that's what we we lacked a lot from COVID. Is yes, that there's all this stuff happening with COVID, and we weren't meeting with each other. And when we were meeting, it was kind of it was virtual. But I think the good old fashioned case rounds um, we used to do rounds. I remember as a fellow with dermatology, okay, uh, for cool. certain things. And I think this is the way that like kind of just sharing people's experiences and. Like, look, I, I get that there's new ways of doing stuff online, for example, but just like doing it with your center mm-hmm. uh, or kind of collaborating with with other centers. I think that's the way to do it, because I agree with you. Monkeypox came very quickly mm-hmm. uh, on, on the heels of the pandemic. And uh, I think it did happen. We did kind of get good data from especially Toronto, where uh, Toronto and Montreal where a lot of the cases were seen. And the reason it happened so quickly was because docs were getting together. And that, that's what I think is the, is the way to do it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think collaboration, interdisciplinary stuff is really kind of the, the way to keep going and, and learn. So before I close off, any other topics or resources that you would say, hey, Durham residents, you really should get? The- I mean, our Durham residents definitely rotate on ID a couple of times and they find it an yeah. invaluable um, <coughs> rotation and they learn so, so much. But are there things that you think, if only you could do this or know about this or do we cover a lot of it?
0: I, I think that uh, we do the same. We, we, we rotate on Durham, and we learn so much. And I do think that one thing is important is that we have a very, very, I mean, for many things it's a very intertwined type of specialty and i think that having kind of good communication between us especially kind of bouncing patients off each other i'm not sure i'll give you one quick thing on uh, uh tinea indotinia oh it's this uh, yeah mm. it's this new um, uh, outbreak epidemic in india okay. of this uh, terbinafine resistant dermatophytosis and we're having tons of issues with it here okay. so having a good relationship with derm you guys are be seeing it pretty soon. Uh, oh, can't it, wait for that one. Tree. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. But this is another situation where I think that, uh, you know, again, having good contact. And by the way, uh, for an easy kind of, if you need like um, to learn about bugs or something quick, up to date is awesome okay. for ID stuff. Great. And also, clinical microbiology made ridiculously simple. Find that book, has really funny pictures. I used it for my ID uh, Royal College exam as, a, as an adjunct. Okay. And it's just great simple way to explain things if you want to read about it
1: that sounds like my kind of book well listen thank you so much for spending this time with me and chatting and sharing your pearls i really really appreciate it
0: great to be here and uh, great chatting about uh, id and derm i'd love to do it again in the future
1: absolutely and i'm sure i'll be calling you about that Kenya that sounds like it's coming our way yes thank you and thank you for listening If you enjoyed this, please give us a rating and a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps people find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss further episodes. If you want to hear more great CDA podcasts, please check out JCMS Author Interviews. Every month, Dr. Kirk Barber talks with authors from his pick of articles in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. That's it for this episode of Dermalogues. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.